0: You would please open up your bibles to the book of philemon
1: and if you don't
0: have your bibles with you it is available on page five printed there in the bulletin for you we will continue on with our work through the letter of philemon focusing today on verses eight through fourteen hear now god's word accordingly though i am bold enough in christ to command you to do what is required yet for love's sake i prefer to appeal to you But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness may not be, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Let us together seek the Lord's help to understand his word. Father God, we thank you again for this book. Thank you for its call for us to be committed to gospel fellowship. And we admit that that's hard at times, as we will see this morning. But God, you have called us more importantly to love, to love one another and to love you. May my words be true, may they be faithful, may you give us ears to hear what it is that you have for us this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. My introduction to music, probably like most kids, came primarily through my parents. Growing up, we had a record player, I actually did know how to use it, that my parents often used. My mom would play it often as we decorated baked cookies or wrapped presents during Christmas time. And my dad would play his favorite records other times throughout the course of the year. And those records would eventually be replaced with CDs and cassettes and the like that could be taken into cars and so on and so forth. The songs and the bands that my parents played were not always received enthusiastically by my siblings, but I found myself gravitating more to my dad's musical tastes. I can remember sitting in the car with my dad listening to his music, whether his own personal collection or simply whatever came on the radio that he would stop and listen to. And once I started driving, much of my collection mirrored his own. And one of my favorites, and my dad's favorites, is the band Chicago. My dad was a trumpet player, so this band was right up his alley, and I played trumpet once in third grade, so, and I also liked my dad. Saturday in the park, Hard for me to say, I'm sorry, you're the inspiration, 25 or 624, color my world, if you lead me now, I can keep going, could frequently be heard in our house, in the car, and even when I started driving in my own car. As did the 1986 song, Glory of Love, which technically is not a Chicago song. It is a song by Peter Cetera, the former lead singer of Chicago. And it was probably one of his biggest hits as he embarked on his own individual solo career. I am fairly confident. I think I heard it not too long ago on the radio. But for those who are unfamiliar with this particular song, the chorus goes like this. Sorry if I've now put this song into your head for the rest of the day. I am a man who will fight for your honor. I'll be the hero you're dreaming of. We'll live forever, knowing together that we did it all for the glory of love. The entire song is a confession of what this particular man will do for love. He will fight. He will persevere. He will stay. Today, we have reached a similar, we we have finally reached the body of Paul's letter to Philemon, and it is where Paul is going to formally make his appeal to this beloved brother. And before he gets to that appeal in verses 15 through 20, which we'll look at next week, our text this morning is going to reveal Paul's motivation behind it. It's love. To borrow the words of Peter Cetera, Paul does it all for the glory of love. Obviously, I say that tongue-in-cheek, because Paul is not concerned with the renown of love, at least not how the song portrays love. Paul's love is far deeper than romantic feelings and passions. Love has already been emphasized at this point in Paul's letter, in his prayer of thanksgiving, which we looked at last week. He rejoiced over Philemon's love for the saints, his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this love for Paul gave credence to Philemon's faith in Jesus Christ. He loved out of his faith and trust in Christ. And this greatly encouraged Paul, even as he sat thousands of miles away under house arrest in Rome or in a prison cell. Love is not a new idea in this letter or in the church. It is critical, it is essential for the life in the body. And so it is for the sake of love that Paul makes this plea with Philemon. Paul hopes that love will encourage Philemon to first receive this letter. And then he hopes that love will encourage Philemon to do what Paul is asking him to do. He hopes that love will lead to greater fellowship between Philemon and Paul, between Paul and Onesimus, between Onesimus and Philemon. And herein lies the point I hope to emphasize this morning, may our love motivate us to faithfully pursue fellowship with one another. Again, verses 8 through 14, our text this morning, flow right out of the prayer we looked at last week in verses 4 through 7. Paul ended that prayer by celebrating Philemon's love, and it is fitting then that he moves right into his appeal by stressing love at the very beginning. And we see that there are three recipients, if you will, of Paul's love in these seven verses. Three recipients, three points, easy math. Love for Philemon we'll look at first, then it'll be love for Onesimus, and then finally love for unity. Each love is expressed uniquely with each flowing out of some aspect of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And that's how we'll we'll form our look this morning. Because without the foundation of Christ in the gospel, Paul's love would truly be nothing more than a strongly worded ballad, such as the glory of love. For only with Christ as its source will love produce a deeper fellowship within the body of Christ. So Paul begins with his love for Philemon. We see this in verses 8 through 9. So how is it expressed? How does Paul show Philemon that he loves him? Paul demonstrates his love for Philemon primarily through his humility. Listen to what he says. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Again, consider who Paul is. Paul is. He is one of the apostles. He's seen the risen Christ when he met him on the road to Damascus. The risen Christ gave him a specific ministry that he was in the middle of working and doing. He planted countless churches throughout Asia Minor. He took on the religious and the intellectual elite of the cities he went into. He even confronted the apostle Peter about not eating with Gentiles. His list of sufferings are recounted throughout his letters, sufferings for the sake of Jesus Christ. He worked miracles by the power of the Spirit. He received visions. His word carried authority. Some of his writings, we have them contained, are received as scripture. Paul had every right and every authority to simply command Philemon what to do. And in fact, bold in this verse literally means the confidence to compel someone to do something. And if he did do it that way, this would have been a very short letter. Hey, Philemon, I'm sending you Anesimus, your runaway slave. He's coming back. Receive him. I command you. I'll follow up in a few weeks. God bless. Talk to you later. It's a really short, simple, simple letter. And this probably would have been my knee-jerk reaction or response for how to handle this situation. I'd kind of go into parent mode. God has given me authority over you, you need to obey. Or you need to do what I say because I am your dad or your superior. Expending the time and the energy over this like Paul does does not sound like my idea of a good time. I would just want to kind of get the whole thing beyond us so that we can then move forward. But thankfully, Paul's not like me. He demonstrates what Peter would tell the church in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, where he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul sets an example by appealing instead of commanding Philemon of humility. Now certainly there are times where orders are necessary. But Paul understands that this time, this circumstance, is not one of them. Appealing to Philemon out of love fits with what Paul has just prayed in verse 6. An appeal to love would increase Philemon's understanding. It would motivate his response of love more than a command would. And as one commentator writes, Paul vested with the Lord's authority... We'll follow the Lord's example. What example? I think we can look to Ephes- Philippians 2 for some clarity, where Paul himself says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul's concern here for Philemon, which is why he appeals to him, is pastoral. He wants what is best for Philemon, not Philemon simply to do what Paul wants him to do. And it means Paul then is willing to humble himself before Philemon. And humility before one another is one of the chief ways that we demonstrate our love for each other. On Thursday, the men's Bible study, we read through John 13, where after washing his disciples' feet, Jesus tells them, For I have given you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Humility is critical for love and genuine fellowship. Pride leads us only to serve ourselves. Pride will instill only love for self. In humility, like Paul, we willingly lay aside what we may want in service and love for another. We will seek the good and the growth of one another before our own interests. So that's his expression. What is the source of Paul's humble expression of love? It's been hinted at in Philippians 2. But it ultimately flows out of Christ's call. Paul confesses uh, in verse 9, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Paul understands what he has been called to do by Christ. Now, old man is a little bit difficult. Is Paul trying to emphasize his age when he says, I'm an old man? He may be only about 65 at this point, which probably isn't that much older than Philemon himself. Plus, Paul appealing to his age kind of sounds a little bit like a pity party. Philemon, would you do this old man a favor, if you won't mind? Just, you know, do me a solid by by listening to what I have to say. But we know throughout this letter, Paul is not seeking a pity party. But this word actually shares the same root, but we get our word elder. And while the classical use of the word is for an aged man, it is also known to be used to mean ambassador. Jesus Christ has called Paul to be an ambassador and a prisoner. And this leads Paul to glory in both. As an ambassador, he represents another. He uses a similar word in 2 Corinthians 5.20 and Ephesians 6.20. Empowered by the Spirit, Paul does the work of Christ. And a prisoner suffers. He lacks the freedom to do as he pleases. And Paul rejoices in this, because in prison, he is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And as a prisoner, he does as Christ commands him to do. Prisoners and ambassadors are what we are all in Christ. We represent him to one another and to the world around us. We share in his sufferings as we obey him. For Paul, being an ambassador and a prisoner, grounded his humility. He understood who he was before his Savior, which then allowed him then to go and minister to his brothers and sisters. It gave him reason to boast, but not in himself, but in Christ Jesus alone. During this pandemic, I fulfilled Bethany's long wish for me to read the entire Harry Potter series. And there is a point in one of the books where Harry, I'm trying not to spoil anything, sets an elf free let leave it at that. But this elf then essentially pledges himself to serve Harry Potter. He uses his freedom to represent him, to help him, and even help Harry's friends. This is our call. We are ambassadors and prisoners of Jesus Christ. We seek to do his will, not ours. We seek to obey his commands, not live lawlessly. And in humility, then, we also love and serve one another. We put the needs and the desires of the body at large before the needs and desires of ourself. It can be difficult. It goes against what we desire naturally. But our fellowship grows. Our maturity increases as we humbly seek to love one another. So from his love for Philemon, Paul then shifts to his love for Onesimus in verses 10 through 12. How is this love expressed? The love Paul has for Onesimus is seen in his great affection for him. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Hopefully this point is pretty obvious. Paul loves Onesimus. From the start of this letter, Paul has not been shy about revealing his affections for his brothers and sisters. He called Philemon a beloved, a his sister. He loved these dear people as though they were members of his own family. And his feelings about Onesimus aren't any different. In some sense, it's even one step further in terms of affection, because he likens his relationship with Onesimus as a father to a son. And we know this isn't foreign to Paul. Timothy, Titus, the entire church of Corinth, and the entire church in Galatia, Paul also referred to as either my child or my children. He commonly spoke of those who were converted in and through his ministry as his children. He felt responsible for them. He nurtured them in the faith. He provided for them. He taught them the way of Christ. Earlier I mentioned my dad and his musical influence upon me. And because he is my dad, there are are countless other ways that he influenced me. I have great affection for him because of these but greater still is the affection I have for my dad because of the influence he has had on my faith. Sure, I remember how he taught me how to play basketball, tie a tie, or drive, or do mildly dangerous things without my mom looking. But what I most remember are the ways that he had helped develop my faith, the way he memorized and encouraged me to memorize scripture. The way he apologized for his sin when he committed it. I witnessed his humble service as an elder for over 20 years in our church growing up. And I witnessed the example of Christ that he modeled before me. And this, more than him being my physical father, is why I can say that I love my dad. And Paul and Onesimus shared such a similar relationship. There was great love and affection for one another. And right here in this point is kind of one of those low-hanging fruit moments as, as a preacher. Where fathers and mothers, the question is, what are you doing to build such a relationship with your kids? How are you stirring your affection with them? Not simply because you are their parent, but because you've been called to shepherd them and to cultivate their faith. And before those who are not fathers and mothers don't listen, Paul tells us as an entire church, this is how we're supposed to relate to one another. We're supposed to operate as a family. So the question is for men, how are we stirring this kind of affection in one another as brothers, as fathers? Women, are you doing the same as sisters, as mothers? And then are we doing it collectively as a family? Are we stirring the affection that comes as we nurture and cultivate and shepherd one another's faith? I would like to think that this is happening. I think there's proof that it is. And I pray that it would continue to happen in our body as we worship and we serve together. I certainly love my physical family. I am filled with great affection for each one of them. But I'm only doing half the job as a follower of Christ if my affection stops there. We are a family because of what Christ has done on the cross to unite us to himself. So may we be overflowing in love and affection for one another, just as we do our physical families. And just in case that idea of affection isn't perfectly clear, Paul calls Onesimus at the end of verse 12, my very heart. He basically says, my heart is being torn out at the thought of sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And again, we catch a glimpse of Paul's humility and love for Philemon. He's willing to part with that which is most near and dear to him for the sake of his brother. And in fact, verse 13 shows that if Paul were to have his own way, he would have kept Onesimus with him and he would have been more than happy to do it. So if we see Paul's love for Onesimus and his affection, what is the source of it? Whereas Onesimus' love, his love for Onesimus flowed out of Christ's call, here we see that it flows out of Christ's work. Onesimus has been transformed by the power of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Formerly he, Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Paul has a little bit of fun here playing off of Onesimus's name. It literally means useful. And prior to crossing paths with Paul, Onesimus failed to live up to his name. He was useless. And the proof was in the pudding. He ran away from Philemon. As verse 18 suggests, he stole from him, probably either money or some sort of personal property. Onesimus was useless. He was good for nothing but pain and aggravation. But now, Onesimus is not who he once was. His entire life has changed. He is now able to live up to his name, useful. And at the time, he has proven to be so to Paul. And in a subtle way, Paul points to the clear work of the gospel in Onesimus' life. The spirit has regenerated his sinful and rebellious heart and given him a heart of, of, of flesh. And his heart of flesh seeks now to obey Christ and to serve others. It's begun with Paul, and it will hopefully continue as he returns to Philemon. Onesimus is, if you will, the prodigal son from Luke 15. He has run away, and now he's getting ready to come back home. He is the wretch saved by amazing grace. He himself is a miraculous work of God's grace in his life. And in fact, Paul emphasizes this in a rather clever way. The Greek word for useful, I'm going to speak Greek here for a second, is eukriston. And it sounds especially similar to the Greek phrase in Christ, in Christon. So if you read this verse too fast, you could almost read it as this. But now he is indeed useful, he is now indeed to you and to me in Christ. Is this what fuels our affection for one another? Does the reality that Christ is in us, working, move us towards one another in love? Does our love grow as we see, as we hear new Christians coming to the faith, coming into our midst? Are our affections stirred as we see our covenant children accepted and received to the Lord's table? Do we find our bonds of love growing as we witness God's power to help one of us, all of us, overcome besetting sin, or to share our faith boldly with our neighbors, our co-workers? No, it is not wrong for our love to grow because of the encouragement, the comfort that we receive from one another. Paul has already demonstrated this reality in this letter. But greater still is the love and affection that flows from the reality that Christ is doing a work of his grace in us. And it's ongoing. So may we learn to love one another as those who have been made useful. Because the reality is all of us were at one time useless. But now in Christ we have been made useful because of his life, death, and resurrection. So Paul has shown his love for for Philemon, for Onesimus. And now he ends this appeal with his love for unity. We see this in verses 13 and 14. So how is this love expressed? We see it in what Paul says and what Paul does. First, what he says. He says in verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him, Onesimus, with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Upon his conversion, Onesimus has become a faithful servant to Paul. And that word serve is where we get the idea of our deacon. Through Onesimus' service, Philemon has actually been ministering to the needs of Paul. And this may have come as a little bit of a shock to Philemon, for one, he likely has no clue what happened to Onesimus when he ran away. He doesn't know if he's dead. He doesn't know if he's hiding. He doesn't know if he's in prison himself. But instead, he finds out that Onesimus has been serving in in Paul, to Paul. So it's possible that Philemon probably feels a mix of maybe confusion, maybe a little bit of anger, maybe a little bit of excitement all at once as he gets this news. But for Paul, this news exposes the reality of the unity of these three men. It reveals the fellowship that's already there. It's assumed that Philemon would would have loved to have been in Paul's presence, serving him, ministering to him, but he couldn't be there. Onesimus, who is actually a member of Philemon's household, is there ministering on Philemon's behalf to Paul. There's unity there. And Paul receives Onesimus as a substitute for Philemon. There's mutual participation between these two men because of their fellowship in Christ. And this brings Paul great joy. So much joy that he would have gladly just kept Onesimus to himself as a ministering, as a substitute for Philemon. And again, this is just a simple encouragement for us that how encouraging it is that we can minister to one another, through one another. We don't have to be in the presence of one another to be ministered. We can do this as we financially support one another, or missionaries, through our prayer support, or to actually sending people from our body to go serve those who we do love and support. And how then does Paul express this unity? He sends Onesimus back out of respect for Philemon. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. And again, this this ties back to Paul's idea of humility. He could have held on to Onesimus out of need. By this point, Philemon has probably moved on from Onesimus, maybe even forgot about him altogether. But Paul is actually benefiting from his service. Paul could have said, what Philemon doesn't know doesn't hurt him. And odds were in his favor that Philemon would have never found out. But it was Paul's love for Philemon and their union as brothers in Christ and co laborers that leads him to make this move. His love for unity was stronger than his love for his own needs. And this reflects what Paul would tell the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, where he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What are we willing to do out of our eagerness to maintain unity in the Spirit? What sacrifices are we willing to make, especially personal sacrifices? Paul sacrificed his own encouragement, having Onesimus there with him. He sacrificed companionship, If he's not totally alone, he has maybe one or two other people with him there in prison. Onesimus would have been a gladly received third. He sacrificed his own benefit in sending Onesimus back for the sake of unity. Paul puts the unity of the body before his own interests and his own benefit. Which then asks us what's the source then of Paul's love of unity? I think Paul tells us it flows this time from Christ's power. He says, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Goodness here points directly back to the goodness, to the good thing Paul prayed for in verse 6. Paul fully expects his prayer to be answered. He anticipates Philemon's growing knowledge of what he has in Christ to empower him to receive Onesimus. This isn't wishful thinking, and neither is it Paul's attempt to somehow guilt Philemon into doing something. It is Paul's honest confession of his assurance that the power of Christ will do the work. He anticipates Philemon of his own free decision of doing what Paul is asking. Not because he's commanded, not because he's coerced, but for love of the body and for unity. It will be because the Holy Spirit will do the work within Philemon, just as he's done it in Paul and in Onesimus. And we know that the gospel itself is not about coercion, and its implications are not about coercion, for leaders and members alike. I read 1 Peter 5, 2, and 3 earlier, but I left out the middle part, which applies to leaders. Where Peter says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. And elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 9, he tells the church, when it comes to giving, that each one of us is to give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Coercion does not bring unity. Unity comes by willing sacrifice. Willing sacrifice, we know, is a critical part of the gospel. Jesus Christ was not coerced into leaving heaven, into putting on the flesh, into dying on the cross. No, he willingly and humbly did these things. He did them out of love for his Father and love for his people. And what's the result? First, it's the union of God and sinners. We know that from Ephesians 2, which then also brings the unity of those who have been redeemed. This simple reality should affect the way we go about seeking and pursuing our unity amongst one another. We're not trying to coerce one another. We're not trying to force one another. We speak the truth to one another in love. We remind one another of the realities of the gospel, the good that is for us in Christ and how then it comes to bear in our lives. And we pray then that Christ would bring about our unity. And we then anticipate how he's going to answer those prayers in our midst. Not because we're great, but because his power is great. So let us love, let our love for unity, see our unity then grow deeper and deeper in Christ. Love certainly is a motivating factor for a lot of the things that we do as human beings. Most of them are good and honorable. Love moves people to protect. Love drives people to sacrifice. It encourages people to do what's right. Love can keep us from doing a lot of awful things. And it can also spur us to do a lot of good things. The glory of love, which I quoted earlier, reveals many of those good things, at least when we're speaking of romantic love. For Christians, for those who have been redeemed by and united to Christ, love goes much further than this. Our love first flows from Christ himself, who we're told loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then from this love, we are then enabled to love one another. This means we love through humility, by sacrificing our own interests for the interests of one another. It means we love by showing and cultivating genuine affection for each other as family. And it means we love one another by cherishing the unity that has been bought for us by the blood of Christ himself. This is our calling. It is our example. It is the very thing that will show the world that we belong to Christ as his disciples. May love motivate us to faithfully pursue fellowship with one another. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for, first and foremost, your love that you have shown us in Christ that you have brought us to yourself, that you have redeemed us, that you have forgiven us, and that you have made us your body. God, I pray that you would motivate us to love one another, to love as we see Paul, love with humility, love with affection, to love with unity. May you strengthen us, strengthen our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may proclaim to a world that is Grasping for a sense of belonging and fellowship that we have it. Not because of us, but because of you. So we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.